With his lispy Alabamian drawl and distinctive mannerisms, Truman Capote became the man of letters known even to those uninterested in men of letters. He was a frequent guest on talk shows and made a practice of ingratiating himself with women of power and wealth. These ladies he referred to as his swans. This personal menagerie was a source of comfort and distraction during his long periods of writer's block. But when in need of material, he betrayed them. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my life, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. I published four chapters from that book. I, I am using real people in the book. There's damn little fiction in it. But um, I only lost three friends as a result of as much of the book has been published so far. I don't guarantee what's going to happen later. Aside from everything else, I always told everybody that I was writing this book. All a writer has is, is for material is what he knows. Okay, and this is a subject that I know a tremendous lot about. I am sincere. I am genuine. I am absolutely truthful when I say I've been looking forward to this interview all day. Nay, strike that all week since I know it's been uh, approaching. Why? Well, because of the author and the subject matter. The author is Lawrence Lima. Now, many of you know him, particularly from his uh, extensive work as a biographer looking at the, the Kennedy family. I don't think there's anyone on the planet, on terra firma, who perhaps knows more about the men, the women, and, if you will, the sons of Camelot, children of Camelot, uh, than Lawrence Lima. But his latest work is about one of the great, well, literary characters uh, of the 20th century, and that is Truman Capote. His latest book is entitled Capote's Women, A True Story of Love, Betrayal, and a Swan Song for an Era. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Watching America, Mr. Lawrence Lima. Welcome, sir. Lovely to have you here. Thank you for having me. We've had you before, and, and uh, it's a delight to have you back once again. You wrote a book some time back about Johnny Carson, and it was called The King of the Night. Uh, I'm sure you have read Johnny Carson uh, by Henry Bushkin, who was, as you know, um, Carson's uh, attorney for many, many years. And in that book, he speaks about uh, Joanne Carson, Joanna Carson, and the relationship that she had with Truman Capote. And as many are aware, particularly you, uh, Mr. Capote died at the age of 59 in 1984 at uh, her her estate in Bel Air, in her property. Um, he was a frequent house guest there. Uh, he had a, a more or less an assigned writing room at his disposal. We are told at that time, some peculiar things as an aftermath occurred. Uh, we're told that his ashes were sold, which she originally had possession of. Uh, they were sold for forty-five thousand dollars. We have, if you will, the latter period of Capote, the, the glam personality uh, frequenting Studio 54 with Mick Jagger. But your work goes way earlier than that when he comes on the scene. Now, I'm quite sure that most of our listeners are aware of, of really the venture of 1958, the novella Breakfast at Tiffany's, certainly the movie from 1961. 
And then uh, a type of new genre, a new uh, novelized, if you will, crime genre um, in Cold Blood, 1966, followed by the very successful movie of 1967. My first question for you is, when did you first encounter the name Capote and what was the attraction? Well, the man is one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Anybody that wanted to be a writer, there's certain writers you read. And obviously Hemingway was one of them. My generation, you read Norman Mailer, but you sure as heck read Truman Capote. And uh, in cold blood, invented a whole new genre of nonfiction. Brilliant writer. Indisputably uh, a brilliant writer. Um, but was it his works that attracted you or, or how much of it was his persona? Because he... He was very conscious of of an image. Uh, he played to it cleverly, adroitly, and uh, it, it 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 did him as well as white suits did for uh, for Tom Wolfe. It did. I mean, at that time, I mean, I, I remember going to a party at Norman Mailer's house where he got in a fight with somebody. He got in a fight with his accountant. That was his fighting period, and he had a persona. and uh, And Truman had that fabulous persona that was so much daring than what Norman Mailer was doing. To be to be a gay man at that period was to live a life of danger. Well, you mentioned Norman Mailer. I've only I've ever been in his company once, but uh, he was highly critical of In Cold Blood at one point. And then he said it's, it's you know, not a true genre. And then he goes and writes The Executioner's Song. <laughs> and then Capote's upset about that and says, no, I'm the first on base for doing for this kind of work. Um, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, there's all this literary circle. There are people on the scene, socialites like Leonard Bernstein, you know, Electric Acid Cooley Test, you know, referred to all of the era. Norman Mailer, Gore Vidal, these high-profile personalities who were uh, uh, great frequenters of the uh, the old Dick Cavett show. Um, Gore Vidal, though, uh, seemed to have some higher degree of tolerance than Norman Mailer. But going way back, before Manhattan, before Manhattan, here was Truman Capote, in a relatively small town in Alabama. How does he emerge from Alabama and make his presence known in New York and manage to so successfully, I don't want to say wheedle his way into the company of these ladies, but certainly um, find himself in, in, in the circles of these ladies, much to his benefit? Well, it's almost impossible. He was five feet, two inches tall. He barely had a high school education. He's self-educated. At the age of 23, he publishes his first novel. Uh, he had to be incredibly socially shrewd and ingratiating with these people, and he was. Well, we've all heard the story of Archibald Leach, who became Cary Grant. And the, the famous story goes uh, much to this effect that Cary Grant was asked, you know, how did you become Cary Grant? And he said, well, I woke up one day and I decided to be him. Did... Truman Capote wake up one day and he said to be him. No, no, Truman, Truman was true to his roots. But when he died, he was still this, this, this boy from this little town in, in, in Alabama, Monroeville. But he stayed true to that his entire life. He never left it in some ways as, as, as much as he tried. And he wasn't, and he pretended to be comfortable in this world with his swans, these, these elegant women that, was, that, that he was going to write about in his famous novel. But... Uh, he wasn't comfortable with them because you never are. Look, you, you can learn how to behave in, in five years. You can use which fork to use and how to speak. But it takes generations, takes three generations at least to be comfortable, truly, truly comfortable in that world. And he wasn't. You 
allege and uh, certainly imply that he had a duplicitous reaction to people with great wealth, these, these swans, as he called them, these choice ladies in his life. Uh, he both admired them for their beauty. Uh, he basked in their presence, but there was also an element of resentment. How was he able to sort that out? Well, everything is grist for his meal. Everything he sees, every place he goes, every meal he eats, he's gathering material. And he was a brilliantly observant man, as great writers are. Wherever he is, he's, he's taking this in. And that's what he was doing with, with these women, planning one day to write this masterpiece. Well, um, one of the most improbable things from his, in his life from the get-go is that he would grow up just in the same neighborhood, just a few streets away from a person who would be a major literary figure, uh, and that's Harper Lee. Um, right. did, it's interesting that when they both got success, um, it is said that they actually fell away and were, were less companions than they initially were. Uh, it's not unusual for gay men to have a good lady friend or girlfriend. Even in high school, junior high, uh, one can see and remember profiles like that where there's been uh, perhaps even a gaggle of girls. Uh, and there's one gay man who hangs out with them as a welcomed party. Uh, did he fall into that role very, very early with Harper Lee? No, but, but Truman truly enjoyed the company of women. Mm. So many heterosexual men, they want to sleep with women, but they don't want to spend much time with them, and they don't listen to them. Truman was different. He'd go to one of these fancy dinner parties. After dinner, the men would go off into the library with their cigars and their cognac to talk about sex and politics and business. He'd go in with the ladies and have a much more interesting time. Well, let's talk about the ladies beyond Harper Lee, and, and perhaps we may circle around if there is time to talk about Harper Lee and his relationship with her uh, later. But one of the key people that is really his his entree to, if you will, the, the high life of Manhattan, certainly in other circles, is uh, a lady known as Babe, affectionately, otherwise known as Barbara Paley. How did he meet her, and what did she find fascinating about him, and uh, how did she develop a trust to let him into her world? Well, he knew David Selznick, the, the, the producer of Gone with the Wind. He wrote a, a script for a, a Selznick film, and, and Selznick invited him on Paley's plane. Paley was the founder of CBS. He said, I'd like to, I'd like to bring Truman. And, and Paley, who was the king of all media, thought that was the former president. And then and the plane is leaving to go to the, the Paley estate in, in Jamaica, and here's this strange little gay man with this long scarf dragging on the floor comes on the comes on the plane and and Pelly can hardly believe it, and 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 what is and what does he do? He was very close to Jennifer Jones, Selznick's wife. She she was his closest friend. He walks down that that aisle and turns toward Babe and sits sits down with her, and the rest is history. She became his closest friend. What was it in his personality that could cause him to to be so graciously received by people and to make him a type of confidant? Well, he he was. I hate the word gossip. Mm -hmm. I don't know what gossip is. Is is it the intimate stories of people's lives? Is that gossip? Is it half truths that got that's gossip? But he was full of these stories that was going on the the inner world of New York, and he just loved telling these stories, telling them, and learning from them. And that's what he did. But but you're still a brilliant writer. This was just part of his life. So uh, he hangs out with Barbara and Barbara proceeds to introduce him or Babe seems to uh, be willing to introduce him to other people in the circle. Um, was that a potentially deleterious, dangerous thing for him to do? Because if you favoured one personality too much over another, could there be repercussions? 
Well, he would betray he, he would betray them all. When he was with the others, he, he'd say negative things about the ones he wasn't with. I mean, he he just uh, he was loyal only to himself. He had a, he had a, had a classic writer's ego. Everything was everything was his material, and he, in, in a sense, he didn't have any friends. So, was he incapable of being authentic? He was authentic in his writing. Okay. All right. Well, then let's look at some other personalities that came along the way. Uh, Nancy Slim, otherwise known as affectionately Hayward, who was Howard Hawke's second wife. Um, what was the association there and, and how did that click? Again, the same thing. Is beauty. He loved beauty. Uh-huh. He loved beauty in women. And the key to these women is they all married rich men. None of them came from real wealth or big, big wealth. They, they, they married above them. I don't, my, I said that, I said that the other day to my daughter about somebody in our family who, who, who had married down. My daughter got very angry with me and said, there's no such thing as marrying down or up. And that, that's her generation. You don't even use that term. But the fact, but the fact is, <laughs> these, these women married up, okay? They married these rich guys because they thought that would bring them happiness. I don't mean just wealthy. I mean, incredibly wealthy, the richest men in America. This is what they want. And they dress to the this, to this style. And in, in a Truman's thinking, these women, these seven swans, created their own art form. Okay. It, it, was, it took diligence, it took discipline to do what they did and to dress as they did. Most women couldn't, could, couldn't do that, even though they had the money. But when they walked into the room, everything stopped. So everything stopped when they walked into the room. What was the opinion of the men? Uh, one of the things I noticed, and we're going to skip back to the latter days, uh, with his uh, fond affiliation with Mrs. Carson right up to the, to the finale of his life, um, she managed to persuade Johnny Carson that he was also a friend to the two of them. And uh, in fact, uh, there's nothing more like gold than to be on The Tonight Show, which I know you've been on before. Uh, and this is before the days of Burbank, but when he was in New York, he had um, he had Capote on, and he described and he says, uh, "I consider him a good friend." My next guest, I consider a very good friend of mine, and is the author of a novel, short stories, and plays. He's uh, certainly taking his place uh, among the front rank of American letters. He's a gentleman who, a long time ago, said, "I'm as tall as a shotgun, and just as noisy." Would you welcome Truman Capote? Well, at that time, for a rather inauspicious uh, personality to be granted the designation of being a good friend of Johnny Carson was completely like gold. How did he manage to find favor with the husbands of these women that he knew his well, in, that, in that instance, in that instance, uh, Johnny Carson and Truman lived in the UN Plaza, which it's still an elite building in New York, but then it was the building. They both lived there. And one day, Joanne, the wife, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and Joanne had been an airline steward. She met she met Johnny on the plane, and she's kind of way against. I can't. I'm not allowed to say uh, marrying up anymore. But anyway, he, he, they yes, married. And, <laughs> okay. okay. So so, so uh, and he and, and Truman taught her how to behave. Right. Taught her how to dress and how to act. And 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 Johnny liked that and spent time with Johnny. And as much as he could, Johnny enjoyed his company of Truman. Because because Johnny was a witty man, of course, mm. and Truman was very very witty. Well, also um, he was no threat to any of these husbands, right. as far as our wives are concerned. That that was off the table, right? You know, right away, there was no issue. Okay, well, um, going from Slim uh, Hayward, you mentioned Pamela Churchill, and uh, she was a friend, actually a very good friend, as you indicate, of of Barbara Paley. 
Uh, how did that association go? And I understand that she um, was quite close, and then there was a kind of siphoning off from one one woman to the other. Did he do that frequently? Go from one woman to another with with friendships. Uh, the thing is, the sexual relations. I mean, who needs a sexual revolution for what they were doing at that period? I mean, when Bill Paley was in uh, it was in London during World War II, Pamela was married to Randolph Churchill, the son of Winston Churchill, mm-hmm. and Paley had a, an affair with with her then. So that so she went back to that, and it was, it was it was years after that when Truman met her, and she had a very scarlet reputation. Nobody wanted to marry her, but she had all, she had all these lovers that gave her money. And he also had another friend with whom he remained friends. And I need to explain this, that he writes originally uh, these women were material, either by uh, initial insight or or just along the way Mirandering as far as his writing was concerned. Uh, They were going to become major figures for a unpublished novel that he had called Answered Prayers. And it never fully materialized, although it did run briefly. Uh, one excerpt was, was published of it uh, in Esquire magazine. And in the process in 1975, uh, he unceremoniously alienates most of these women, save for one, and that is Gloria Guinness. She did not wash her hands of him. Why not? Why did she make the exception? He didn't attack her in his excerpt in, in, in Esquire, as he did several of the others. So she was not offended. And in doing that, there's no reason he had to do that. He could have told these stories. He could have, you know, taken the names out and changed it a little bit. And, but he, he wanted to do that. He wanted to do this terrible thing to these people. And, and he was excused. Afterwards, some of the critics said, oh, these women are worthless. These rich women, they got what they deserved. I don't see it that way. I think, I think trust and friendship is, a, is an ultimate. And you still can write your great book. You still could have written that book. I mean, Proust, Proust wrote it magnificently without betraying people. So did Edith Wharton. Hmm. Well, then, I'm interested to what extent your opinion of Mr. Capote uh, modified. I mean, obviously, he was a great writer. Um, a great art does not necessarily require a uh, great character, I presume we could argue. But did you find him increasingly distasteful to you the more you researched this book and looked into the, the if you will, the carnage, at least social carnage, that he left behind. Well, Gerald Clark wrote his biography, and it's one of the best literary biographies I've ever read. And he spent about the last 10 years of Truman's life with him. So he he devotes a disproportionate amount of his time of, of, of the descent, okay? And if I had had those 10 years with Truman, I'm sure I'm sure it would have been done the same thing. But alas, that's what we focus on, and not on the gift, not, not on the high part, but, but on the drugs and the dissipation. All right. Another lady on the scene, uh, Lee Radzowell, uh, and she was right. Jackie Kennedy's youngest sister, I believe. Um, how did that association come along? And incidentally, by that, no doubt, that also brought him into orbit, at least into the gravitational pull of Gore Vidal, who is related to uh, right. Jackie. I guess I'm allowed to say that. Now the book is out and I can't change anything. But she was my least favorite of these women, Lee Roswell. She was incredibly jealous. She had everything. She was married to a prince. She had all this money. The kids were healthy and everything, these beautiful homes. But she was so jealous of her sister, she, she, she could not stand it. She consumed, consumed with jealousy. Now, jealousy is the, is the great American vice. We're all full of this as Americans because we think we live in an egalitarian society, which we don't. And we think we can get anywhere. And anywhere, anybody that gets there, we don't think, isn't that wonderful they're there? We'll think, we think I should be there. 
And Lee thought she should be there. She should be the first lady, not her big sister. And so what role did um, Truman play in in either being of assistance in that angst that she felt or perhaps um, exploiting it to the fullest? Well, he, he met her at a, at a lunch in, I think, 1962. And what did she do? Within 10 minutes, she's telling him how, how, she, how, how she despises Jackie. And uh, Truman takes her case. And he gives these interviews for People magazine and, and other sources, just putting her, putting Jackie down and, and elevating Lee. It really was quite distasteful and unnecessary, but Lee loved it. Ah, okay. So he was, he was very ready to parlay any influence he could to get further favor, working his way up in circles. Right. Um, what I'm curious about is how these uh, relationships, if if any, had any bearing on Truman Capote's uh, longtime partner, Jack Dumphy. Jack Dumphy lived actually to the early 90s. Um, was Jack just hanging around, for instance, when, when Truman Capote was living at Mrs. Carson's house in Bel Air and had a, a dedicated writing room at his disposal provided by her, was Jack Dunphy part of the team or was was uh, Truman supposed to come by himself and stay for a number of months? Well, J- J- Jack was uh, one of my favorite characters. He was a very handsome, macho man who was in the chorus line of Oklahoma in 1944. His wife was one of the stars. And uh, his the, the stardom did not do well for his wife, and they divorced and, and Jack said that if, he, if he'd stayed married to his wife, he would have stayed a heterosexual. And it, it's strange enough, this I don't really understand why, but Truman loved heterosexual men that he could convert to the true faith. Mm. Three of his major lovers were, were heter- had been heterosexuals, the other two with, with, with wives and children. But Jack didn't do that. Jack was a novelist. He wrote one for first novel, which had great promise, that never came through. And uh, he wasn't jealous of Truman. He, he, he tried to help Truman. He loved Truman. And he didn't like him being around these rich women. He thought this was ruining his craft, ruining his art. And, 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 and Jack and Truman uh, drew further apart. And, and Jack knew the truth. Jack knew that Truman was not writing answered prayers. He was telling everybody he was writing it. He was drinking a lot. And people call in the morning and said, I'm writing answered prayers. He'd be, he'd be lying in bed reading movie magazines. Uh, he seemed to be very much at peace with making up fables and stories, uh, even in the reference to cinematic versions of interpretations of Capote. We, we, we have that inference, which is made clearly that he's even willing to, in one scene of a film, to pay a porter to, in front of Harper Lee, say, uh, I like your work. And it's, it's all a ruse. Right, right. Um, it, was that scene, although cinematic, is that indicative of a, of a genuine part of the man's makeup? Well, he liked putting he liked putting people on. That's for sure. I don't know. If, I don't think that story is true. But it was the kind of license that was totally appropriate in that wonderful movie. Okay, um, there's this uh, famous picture of a relatively young Truman dancing with Marilyn Monroe, and I remember uh, as a younger man seeing him on an interview program years ago, in which he said that Marilyn Monroe said to him while they were dancing, "You know, wait, um, well." She had said, I can't do a Marilyn Monroe. Perhaps I can't even do a Capote either. But she had evidently said, what was your greatest sexual experience? And when I heard him say that, I thought, that's an awkward, weird thing for somebody to say on a dance floor out of the blue. 
Um, so there was a, this uh, provocative element that he, uh, it seems to me, and I didn't know him or ever meet him even, as you have, but right. uh, it, it seems to me that he was not beyond infusing, shall we say, extracurricular dialogue to, to make a story a bit more juicy. Is, is that a true assessment? Everything is a story. The, the distinction between facts and, and, and story uh, is not there in him. And truly, in, in, in Cold Blood was, one of these other things, that, that, that just goes along those lines between them, and he doesn't care where it ends up. So um, he's very much kissing the Blarney and comfortable with it. Uh, the other question I'd like to, to ask is about his writings. Um, they, uh, they were not always super successful. Uh, towards the end of his life, he's uh, going back to the short story form. We have, I think it was Music for Chameleons, I remember reading. Was he pleased with himself at that point or was he struggling with uh, imbibing in stimulants and, uh, and alcohol and, and other nefarious things for his, uh, for his disposition? No, not not only then, but you know we think we see other people and we th- and they're successful. Like why can't I be successful like that? Why can't I be successful writer like Truman? But he got so many negative reviews. I mean, you can't believe all the negative reviews he got in his various books. Not in the Cold Blood, but he struggled. He, that, that's what he said, had to face his whole life. Of course, in the end, he couldn't do it. It was very painful the kinds of things he was doing. But the the, the skill was still there. But he spent his creative energy, pretending he was writing this book that he didn't write and couldn't write. If I had known the man, I would have said, Truman, you can't do it. Forget it. You're blocked. Go back and write the story of your failure to write this book. Do it that way. You'll have your masterpiece. Just do that. Um, this is a personality that we could say is uh, uh, was uh, calculating perhaps to be unkind, uh, lacking in grace here, but a calculating interloper. What was it that he was looking for? Was it validation through these women, his swans? Or was it, um, uh, frankly, a free ride in some instances where you get to stay at people's homes at a length of time uh, without it taking a nickel from your own from your own pockets? Well, no, he didn't have the money to live the way they lived. If he had the money, he would live. He, he loved beauty mm. he, and, and, and exquisite taste. And they had that. I mean, it was just unbelievable the way they lived, Okay. And so to be around that uh, was, was where he wanted to be. But writers, celebrities seduces and destroys writers. Now, he's not the first one who suffered that fate. Well, you could go to Robert Burns in Scotland. I mean, Robert Burns right. is you know, a very, very uh, common man of the earth poet, and right. he gets invited to uh, huge landed gentry mansions and homes. And in a sense, he's a little wind-up monkey for them, if I can be so uh, unkind, which I sound very much in this interview. Uh, and, he's, and that's the price he pays to be in their company. There's no free lunch. You go over lunch, and you have to sing for your lunch. You have to tell stories all during the time. Of the women that you considered, uh, seven, in fact. Which was your favorite, and which did you find the most appealing? Uh, I found Gloria Guinness the most fascinating. It was troubling to me that she was married to a uh, a, 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 a German duke during World War II, and when he was on the Russian front, she had a serious affair with the head of the intelligence arm of the SS, the, the main Nazi spy. And uh, that that really troubled me. But she was just fascinating the way she survived. In my book, there's a picture of her when she's 60 years old. You, th- you think she's 20 years old. And, uh, you know, anorexia was the occupational disease of these women, to stay that thin. How can you stay that thin? Normally, you can't stay like that. Mm. But they had to stay that way, and they stayed that way. 
I mean, the term you're not too rich or too thin is often attributed to Babe Paley, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and both are untrue. Do you know who, in fact, who said that? Nobody really knows for sure. Okay. Uh, when you consider the, you've already said the, the, the least favorable one, which you really didn't like, was somebody that you came in with one opinion of these women and actually by your research, you, you modified it considerably? Uh, CZ Guest was born in a Boston Brahmin family. I mean, she was one of the few that came from an old elite American family. And uh, that was both her blessing and her curse. She married Winston Getz, who was from a, a, a rich British-American family, and they had a very troubled marriage. And she said, it survived because of manners. Now, what does she mean by that? She, she is in this elite of the elite where, she, where they had servants everywhere. So your whole, your whole life is a stage. Your whole life is a play. You're never truly yourself. So you're not going to scream at your husband over the dinner table when people are serving you your soup. So that enabled them to survive. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I'm very happy to say that my return guest is Lawrence Lima. You know his work largely, uh, I presume, from his work on the Kennedys, a a three-volume set, the Kennedy women, the Kennedy men, and uh, the the children of Camelot. Uh, His latest book is entitled Capote's Women, A True Story of Love, Betrayal, and a swan song for an era. How would you describe that era in a nutshell? It's interesting that you, I, I, I don't really get the sense that you uh, were that much infatuated with the latter stage of his life. And I call it the studio 54 years, and, and maybe we can even back up uh, to well, it. No. Yeah, uh, in 72, I think he traveled with the Rolling Stones and wrote an article about them. And, and that was the Mick Jagger and Bianca Jagger uh, entree for him. Um, so you concentrate on this earlier period. What what was the attraction, and why did you make that decision? Well, I, you know, I'm a child of the '60s. Mm-hmm. I looked down on these people and their fancy clothes and the designer dresses. I thought it was a kind of joke, and I always dressed very casually. And now I see what is lost. I live in Palm Beach in the winter, and a few months ago we were having dinner at Café de Rope, one of the leading restaurants. Two tables away were these two gentlemen in, in shorts and flip-flops mm. eating an enormous meal. The next day were 10 people speaking loudly. And the manager came over. I was talking to the manager and said, what is this about? And he said, well, we were losing too much business because we had these clothing standards. So now we'll let everybody out. And that's true of everything. Okay. Yeah. And that concern for dress, uh, it, it just added a, a pleasurable element to life. It's not, uh, curing cancer that's for sure but it, <laughs> but it wasn't when you go out i don't know when you go out to the theater i i get it i get it i mean i remember a time that when you i mean and it does age the both of us i'm afraid i remember uh, a time that if you flew on an airline it was a big deal particularly continental right. flight intercontinental flight and you dress right. up I and mean, if you look at the you know the old films which i think uh, uh, correctly and accurately depict this uh, men wore suits on the planes and ladies wore you know uh, uh, a ring of pearls around around their neck and uh, and and tweed suits and it was all part of the thing well uh, you know, you couldn't get into certain restaurants, sardis and places in Manhattan if you didn't have a tie. And if you didn't have one, they'd provide right, one. Right. It's, it's, it's all gone by the wayside. Um, so it sounds to me that you, you hanker and, uh, and uh, in a way, mourn for those days. Is that accurate? 
No, but there's an, there's another element about this. Okay. I went to Antioch College in Ohio, mm-hmm. and Antioch had this work study program. And one quarter, gosh, it's got to be 1962. I went to Watcher, Iowa, and worked on the Watcher Patriot Chronicle, a weekly newspaper in a town of a thousand. The, the the young men in high school wore the, wore jeans and white t-shirts. Okay, mm-hmm. and they wanted to become farmers like their dads. <laughs> the young women, yeah. They dressed up. They went to J.C. Penney's. J.C. Penney's was a very important American institution then. They knocked off the kinds of dresses that the swans, the Truman swans, were wearing, and they would wear them. They didn't want to become farmers' wives. They wanted to do something else with their life. That was their political statement. Now, for most of them, it didn't work, but they wanted something different and better. Now, you've got to forgive me for asking this, but I, I can't help but be uh, candid. Uh, and uh, I'm, this is not accusatory directed towards you, but I'm just talking about an environment which you go into. Um, some people, what I call drip in, with insincerity, right? And very often you'll find them in particular circles of famous and well-to-do people. Uh, you s- have subsisted and uh, thrived in those circles at various times, both in New York and elsewhere and certainly in Palm Beach. Do you feel a degree of tension when you go into an environment where people perhaps are not being authentic and the game is, look what I've got, look what I've acquired, and perhaps you don't have it? Hey, but I'm on the edge. I'm observing. <laughs> You're Truman. I'm going to write about it. Listen, I wrote a book called Madness Under the Royal Palms, okay? Yes. Palm Beach Daily News didn't like it at all and banned me from the newspaper, okay? Yeah. I've, Despite the books and the plays and everything I've done since then, my name doesn't appear in the paper. There are two. There are two books bookstores in Palm Beach, okay? Yeah. And they do a local bestseller list. When when my name is on that list, they don't print the bestseller list, okay? <laughs> so, well, you're so, also banned from 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 Trump's place as well. I'm banned from Malaga, and I'm <laughs> and I'm banned from these two of the Wasp clubs. I mean, I'm not allowed into those clubs. How, how so, are things at McDonald's? Are you okay there? No, I mean, I can go to the public grocery store up to now, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. I mean, that, that, that's what a writer should be. If your books are not controversial, you've done something wrong. If you're totally accepted, you're a failure as far as I'm concerned. There has to be an edge to your writing and to the way you deal with people. You have to be honest with them. You can't lie to them. and You can't do what Truman did to them, betray them in that way. I've never done that. No, nobody's ever said I've made up stories or done something I wasn't said, said I was going to do. I'm proud of that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. And as I have said at the outset and midpoint and I'm still saying now, I'm so delighted to have Lawrence Lemer as my guest. We've had him here before and uh, we enjoyed him the first time. And that's why, indeed, he is back. You know him as a biographer of, uh, of such important works as The Kennedy Women, The Kennedy Men and The Children of Camelot. His latest book is entitled Capote's Women, A True Story, A True Story of Love, Betrayal and a swan song for an era. When was the conclusion of that era, in your estimation, uh, and particularly as related to Truman Capote? Well, the swans. The swans existed for one generation. With them, it died. And they're all gone now. And so you would put that at what? Circa 1971, maybe, or something like that? Yes, something like that, yeah. Yeah. If you could sit down with Truman... And uh, I, you know, I keep wanting to resist mimicking. I do it with affection, by the way. But if 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 he sat down opposite you and said, "Okay, so what do you think of me? What advice do you have?" 
what would you have said or perhaps would say if uh, he could be brought back in the flesh? You know what I would say, first of all? Mm-hmm. I love you, Truman. Wow. Okay? D- doing this book, I love the man. I love his creativity. I love what he went through. I admire him. And, and I want people to, re- to, to, to love him and, and have affection for him as a great writer and not focus just on the dissipation. It is said that it is easy to judge a person. It only takes a day, but it takes a lifetime to understand a person. Right. Have you gotten to the point that you understand him? Uh, do I understand him? Does anybody understand anybody completely? Not completely. I mean, do I understand my wife after 37 years? I'm not sure. And, uh, so, so no, do, are there parts of this guy I don't grapple with? Why did you, why did you fail this way, Sherman? Why do you do some of the things you do? It, it just, it's, just a, it's just a riddle. But I'm absolutely convinced that there's no secret manuscript to answered prayers. He didn't write that. He just pretended to write it. It doesn't exist. Uh, you don't think any copy exists at all because there's also his earlier works, as you are aware, were believed to be missing and then they were unearthed by somebody who had retrieved them, you know, the proverbial story, they were going to be thrown out and they reemerged for auction and what have you. Uh, do you find that, that story spurious? No, Joan Carson invented this story about how it was in a lockbox and she had, she'd lost the, she didn't know where it was and she had a key and she didn't know what it was for. It was totally invented. Totally invented. Okay. Let's go back now and uh, and look at Harper Lee. Uh, there was a major separation. I mean, the improbability that two great authors would grow up in a relatively right. small area of Alabama uh, and then go on to have um, very well-known, noted lives uh, is 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 extraordinary. But it happened. Um, what what caused the great divide between them? Uh, one of the in, most interesting books I have read of late, in fact, we had the, the guest on, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, is by Casey Sepp. The book was called Harper Lee, uh, uh, or rather her book on Harper Lee, and it was called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial Trial of Harper Lee. And as you know, it deals basically with this personality, the Reverend uh, Willie Maxwell. Truman's involved on the periphery of that. She's actually going to help him uh, do research, as she did, on in cold blood. So there's this synergy, this thing working together between the two of them, and then whoo, they go in different directions. What happened? Well, first of all, Truman always had to be number one, okay? Uh, when she went out to... Uh, to, to join him doing research on cold blood, her novel had not been published. And there were no great expectations for a novel, a short novel, but how, who was she? But when it became an enormous success, and basically is read more than Truman's work now. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate irony. But, uh, you know, when, 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 when she became a success, which kind of destroyed her. She, she couldn't go on beyond that either. It was just overwhelming to her. And then they, they grew apart. So, yeah, it's hard to top yourself. Uh, you know, the Beatles did not want to get together and make yet another album. How can you, how can you top what you've already done? Uh, so when it came to the latter days, and I know you don't really cover this at length in your book, but when it came to the latter days of, of Truman's life, he still had Joanne Carson looking after him and uh, caring about him deeply. Uh, he seems to have always had at least one woman in the wings to fall on. You know, like a, like some some lovers always want to have one in the wing in case they lose the person they've got at the moment. Was that a pattern for Truman? Or uh, do you think that just 
Joanne Carson was exceptional. Well, Joanne, Joanne was Joanne was unique, and I I knew Joanne very well. Mm-hmm. And and there were these sets of uh, bedrooms uh, off the kitchen, which they were extremely the diminutive suite where it's his room. Uh, in in 1988, uh, Joanne called me mm-hmm. and said that shortly before Truman died, he had done this recording to telling her how she could give the 1980s counterpart uh, the black and white ball, the famous party that he gave after the publication of In Cold Blood. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that happened. I believe Joanne made that up because she, she wanted to bring attention to herself and she could do that by make, making it up. Just because before she said that Truman said she could have half the ashes, I didn't believe that either. Anyway, she, so the party was going to be on, on Halloween in 1988. And I said, that's fabulous. But she said, Larry, but you can't come. In, in her divorce papers, if she said anything negative about Johnny, she'd lose her alimony. She didn't want me to be there. Yeah. So Halloween morning arrives and she calls mm-hmm. and she changed her mind. She, she says, you can come, Larry, but you've got to come in, in costume. So I went to the costume store. On Halloween morning, there was nothing left in the costume store except one costume on the rack. It was the executioner. <laughs> so I got to execute okay. in a black hood and the leather gloves and, and the plastic hatchet and showed up at her house above sunset. She had invited every star in Hollywood, every star in Hollywood. And the paparazzi were out there in force. Only the stars didn't dare show up because I thought if they showed up, uh, you know, Johnny wouldn't have them on the night show. Right. So I'm going up to Broadway and they call come up on me. You're, they, they assume I'm a star. They're jumping all over me. I, I don't dare show them my face. And I go in there and there's just nobody there. It's just sad. She spent so much money. I mean, all these these beautiful tables and t- uh, around the pool and everything. And at midnight, you're supposed to take off your mask. Well, I couldn't take off my mask. So I left just before midnight. Hmm. I leave. And right after that, she comes out of the bedroom and says, there's been a thief. They've stolen Truman's ashes. They've stolen the, the last manuscript to answer prayers. And they've stolen my jewelry. Ah. Well, she, well, she didn't call the police. Yes. Because it didn't exist. Right. A few days later, she said the ashes were found, discovered. I went over to help her with them. We got in the car, drove around. We went to the West, West Side Memorial. And we, we saw these crypts. It was P- Peter Lawford's crypt, and the and the mortician said the Kennedys haven't paid for this. We'll take his name off there, and Truman go in there. So she cut a deal for thirty thousand dollars. She had only half of his ashes. She couldn't stand apart with them, so she poured out half of those and put a, a quarter of Truman's ashes in there, along with hundred percent of her dog's ashes, and put them back in there. And when you go there, that's what there is. So they're blended, mixed together, synthesized. Exactly. Wow, what a story. Gosh, um, one of the things that comes through Bushkin's uh, book on on Carson is clearly he could freeze people like no one else on earth. Evidently, I mean, if 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 he didn't like you, you were persona, you know, non grata. How much did Freddie Decovida fit into all of this about who got booked on the show? You were on the Carson show, I know, on the Tonight Show. Um, Freddie Decovida, who was originally a director for Jack Benny, uh, obviously Carson held Jack Benny in high regard. Um, was he kind of a hatchet man to follow through with uh, Johnny's wishes? And so. Yeah. And, and by the way, Bushkin was my best secret source for that book. Really? He, he gave me my best information. Wow. For my book. Yeah. And, you know, Carson was an unpleasant person. He, be, he beat up women. I mean, I mean, I mean uh, Joanne Carson showed me her divorce papers. Part of it was to have her chin redone. Wow. So there was, he was very, very violent and uh, volatile to a physical degree. 
He was fantastic for that hour when the red light was on. Other than that, get, get out of his way. Wow. Wow. Um, did you have any nasty dealings with him? I heard he was, he was not a very pleasant person when he imbibed in, in wine in particular and alcohol. Oh, no, he did. No, but, but I, I got his home phone number, okay? And I'm one of these people. If I'm in the right mood, I can talk to anybody. Hmm. If I'm in the bad mood, my mother will hang up on me, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I've got you in a good mood. So I had to be in the good mood. Yeah. So I waited until Friday evening at 7 o'clock, and I'm in the perfect mood. Well, every writer, I hate to say this, but every writer answers the phone the same way on the first ring. Because you're sitting there in desperate isolation waiting for something <laughs> to break up your solitude. And I, I take my arm like this. I don't want the world to know how desperate I am to talk to somebody, okay? <laughs> okay. I hope you're late for two rings. So I know I got to get, so I'm calling Carson. I, I know somebody's going to answer the, the phone. I got to get through to the butler and the butler's got to put me through to him. It's going to, so at least two or three people got to talk to you to get to him. And I'm, I'm, I'm perspiring. I dial the number. First ring. Hello, hello. It's Johnny Carson, home by himself, alone on Friday evening, picking up the phone. Wow. So what happened? He was very polite, but he wouldn't talk to me. Why would he talk to me? Because he uh, he knew that I knew what he what the, what the, what a man he was. He didn't want that out there. How can none of these women press charges? And were they able to siphon off uh, uh, you know a payment and say, look, you know, if uh, you've done me damage, and um, we we'll keep it private? I mean, what what was what was the the gist of how it was handled? His first wife, the uh, the mother of his children, his three children, uh, got a $30,000 settlement and lived in a tiny motel north of L.A. And he would go on The Tonight Show joking about how the money she got. Wow. Wow. So we, we had Joan, uh, Joanne, and then Joanna. Uh, and then I believe Alexis was the, right, the right, fourth one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Capote, I mean, he was part of that circle for, for some time. Was he banished eventually after, you know, Joanne the breakup of their relationship was that bye-bye Capote. Well, no, she, she Truman made his choice for Joanne. Okay. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't make his, she could have made his choice for Johnny. He didn't do that. He was loyal to Joanne and Joanne was loyal to him. Okay. All right. Um, Dick Cavett uh, is part of this world. And then there was a period where you didn't see Truman Capote on the tonight show very much, but you did as pretty regularly see him on, on, the, on the Dick Cavett program. Uh, was there a friendship there amongst them? I know that Cavett lives out, uh, certainly in the Hamptons, and always commuted in. Um, was there a special literary, not that, you know, Cavett only wrote, I think, one autobiography or a memoir of some sort, or two perhaps, um, but was he part of a key circle? These people aren't real friends. Okay. They're, they're celebrities. They just brush, brush across each other. But they don't, they're, 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 it's, not, it's, it's, it's not about friendship. Okay, you've been part of Hollywood, you've been part of New York, and you've been now you're currently part of Palm Beach. Do you have a stoic kind of attitude towards meeting people socially famous or not so famous or wealthy? Do you just say, okay, it is what it is. Some people are just posing. Some people uh, are capable perhaps of being uh, genuine. And I'm wondering if the genuine people are eaten up by those less sincere. Is is that something you've observed? Well- you, you can spot people who are genuine, can't you? It takes it takes a while. They're always there. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you have uh, very clever, crafty people like Truman Capote who can, you know, ingratiate himself uh, and... Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay. So, I mean, you know, he's, he evidently had these skills in, involved there. So you said that you loved him. If you were to talk to him, you'd say, I love you. Okay. Why yeah, do you love him? Or why would you love him? I love him because he's... 
so full of life. He's incredibly full of life. I've overcome some challenges in my life, but there's nothing compared to what this guy, guy came through. Part of it was just being a gay man of his generation, but it was more than that, that he could stand up and do what he did and write what he, write what he did and lived how he lived. And, and he lived, he, he, he and Jack Dumpy, they lived all over. They didn't live in the United States. Lived in Italy and France and Switzerland. They, they lived daring lives in their way. And I admire, I just admired that quality in him. Well, Gore Vidal lived in Italy for, for much of each year, yeah, right, uh, for, yeah, for many, many years. So, okay, so do you admire his canniness or do you admire his survivalship? I admire, I don't even call it survivalship for most of it. I think he was on top. I mean, he, he uh, at, at a young age, I mean, who, who at the age of 23 publishes his first novel of, of that caliber? What a magnificent gift he had. And it's just a pity. He could have done so much more. It's just, it's just a tragedy. We should, be, we should be talking about him as one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. And we're not going to do that. We're not going to do it. We're going to talk about his decadence and drugs. But we should understand what this man could have been. Well, let's strive to talk about the literary aspect of his uh, of his life in these latter moments that we have before we part. Uh, just a reminder, everybody, uh, you, we are listening to, uh, we presume, <laughs> I'm listening, I hope you're listening as well, to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I am delighted to say again, my guest is Lawrence Lima, the author of Capote's Women, A True Story of Love, Betrayal, and A Swan Song for an Era. Um, what do you consider his greatest works? And when you when you read his prose, uh, when you read his fiction, what stands out as saying, yes, this is true artistry? Well, first of all, he could have been one of the great, the greatest narrative nonfiction writer of the age. He wrote a book, The Muses Are Heard. He went to Russia with a, uh, a company of Porgy and Bess, black company Porgy and Bess. Mm-hmm. It was a, the first time uh, an American troupe had gone to Rus- com- communist Russia. And any other reporter would have made a political piece about it. He just told about these people's lives in the most intimate details. He observed. He missed nothing. And, and that's the quality he could do in that work. And he brought that same quality to his fiction. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Holly Go Lightly is one of the great female characters of the 20th century. She was a woman unhappy with her life. I mean, Betty Friedan said there was nobody writing that kind of character for 20 years. What Truman had written it. One of the most uh, interesting parts of your book is the ending of it, where after um, Truman has died and Joanne Carson has his eyes. I, I was wondering if you'd be so kind as to read an excerpt of that for us. Yeah, well, she had his ashes and, uh, and, and took his ashes and placed them. And, and when she died, the, ash, the ashes were sold uh, for $45,000. And so here's how my book ends. What a marvelous set piece Truman would have made of this tale. Nothing in life was too bizarre for his scrutiny. If he, was, if he was sitting over dinner with his swans, he would have regaled them with this business, spinning it out in all kinds of ways. Napoleon's was not the best penis he would have seen. Time described it as looking like a maltreated strip of buckskin shoelace, but it had once been attached to the invader of Russia and ruler of half of Europe. And a quarter of Truman's ashes had gone for 15 times the price. Truman understood the myriad ironies of his life better than anyone. He had written two books that will live in Cold Blood and Breakfast at Tiffany's, but he had not finished his self-described masterpiece, Answered Prayers. Brilliant of mind, merciless in ambition, 
shrewd in social relations, Truman believed that he could enter the swan's domain and leave with the shaft d'oeuvre in his hand. But he got all tangled up in the swan's world and in his own personal demons. In the end, answered prayers proved to be as much Truman's story as it was the swan's. People bid for Truman's presence in death and bid royally, just as they had in life. As long as people read Truman's books, talk about him, and fight over some measure of his presence, he is alive, beguiling the world with his stories. Wow. Lawrence Lima, I'd like to ask you, is there any question that I haven't asked you that you wish I had? And you can take a moment to think about that. I don't need a moment. You're fabulous. You ask everything. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you to say that. that you've, you've made my, my week. Thank you. Um, I just want to tell you how grateful I am for you uh, as a voice in America. You have been privy, had license to go in circles that not all of us can. And I think you are a, uh, a true sayer of what you have witnessed without perhaps the, um, uh, the, the liberties taken by your subject, Mr. Truman Capote. Uh, you do an honor to Mr. Capote, to certainly watching America, and to America itself. And so, Lawrence Lima, thank you so very much for being a part of this program. You've enriched us all. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. But I've always been wearing these dark glasses, Dick, ever since you've known me. I have never, oh, never no. not had uh, these dark glasses. Some psychiatrists say that, that you wear them because you're hiding from something or that you're... But um, I've worn them since I was about uh, 12 or 13 years old. God knows, I guess I had a lot to hide from. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we.